0: Well, good afternoon and thank you once again for joining me for Business, The Law and you. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll have a look at one of our Harvard Business Review tips. This particular one, apologize quickly if you send an embarrassing email. We're also going to have a chat with uh, Christina uh, about uh, using the six Ds in your business, and we'll find out what those six Ds are. But right now, we're going to have a chat with Richie Williams, who's a family business advisor, about some of the challenges for a family business. Good afternoon, Richie.
1: Good afternoon, Gillian. It's a pleasure to be on to you you are this afternoon.
0: Yeah, and, we're, and we go back a long way, don't we? About 20 years, I think.
1: We, we certainly do. Uh, we met in Melbourne. of the globe. Yes, met in Melbourne at a conference, Julian, where we're involved with a couple of uh, alike businesses, which was very interesting.
0: So so uh, how did you discover family business?
1: Well, actual fact, uh, I think it discovered me, Julian, because oh. uh, it, the preparation that uh, I had in coming in and actually working with businesses, there was never really a focus on understanding what family business was. And, uh as I worked with a couple of businesses, I realised that there is a whole range of intricacies where there were family members involved. And um, as I worked through those, uh, I was referred into more family businesses, and all of a sudden I realised that this was bigger than Ben Hur. And so uh, I did a review of what family business was about and what the challenges were. And- uh, and, and unbelievably, um, as you look at family business, it actually spreads beyond the business and back into community. So, uh, mm. so I thought it was a great opportunity to, to work in that environment. And, and it is interesting uh, how family businesses form and then what they can become over time.
0: So, so what are some of the common challenges that uh, family businesses have?
1: Well, um, that's really interesting. I think, Julian, first of all, for the sake of the listeners to understand, as I may have done 25 years ago where I've gone in a little naively, um, realising what the extent of family business is, if we actually look at family business in Australia, some of these names, such as um, Visi in uh, recycling and packaging and Mm. you've got Lindquot in transport, Westfield's in real estate, Uh, PFD Food Services uh, in food distribution, Hancock Prospecting, um, Hutchinson Builders and these are names that people will see on an everyday basis but not realise that the essence is that they are a family business and you may think that family businesses are the strong and the boldest but the statistics indicate that 70% of Australian businesses are actually family owned which actually represents about 480,000 businesses but Julian, the numbers numbers actually get even uh, more frightening. Estimated wealth is $4.3 trillion in Australia of family businesses. But here's the big catch. We talk about employment. They actually employ over 50% of the Australian workforce. So the statistics as you look at them are actually staggering. Mm. So when we look at common challenges that the family businesses have, the, they become very complex, and predominantly because, uh, first of all, a family business constitutes more than one family member, and we may have a nuclear family where it's uh, mum and dad, or, or father and son, or something such as that. But as the uh, the intertwining of different personnel in the family, and particularly as generations come in, you've got blended families and mixed families. Uh, uh, you've got uh, stepkids. Uh, you've got the. Individuals that have relationships with the family members are now part of the family business. So the common challenges really uh, extend across a whole range of political uh, forces which Mm. uh, make it pretty hard when you're trying to manage the business and you've got this intertwinement of running a business but also um, looking after the family.
0: So so how do family businesses differ from traditional businesses? I mean you mentioned the one board...
1: And, and knowing your background and the, the, the levels that you've had in business, um, we all understand that businesses in their own right is a system, mm. but a family business is a system of its own accord. It, it conflicts with your traditional textbook businesses. And I'll give you some examples. In a business, uh, a traditional business where there are non-family members involved, it's a competitive environment, but in a family business where you've got family members, it's more of a protective environment. Mm. As, as a result, the business uh, in its own right can be objective, but the family business is, has more emotional aspects in it. Um, the business can be actually task-based, but the family business is obligation-based. Uh, the business can be performance-based, but a family business is loyalty-based. Um, The competencies that are required are known in a business, but in a family, there's more nepotism, um, and that can actually create uh, distrust and disruption and poor relationships from a non-family member working in the business to a family member. And I suppose employment is an opportunity in a a traditional business, but in a family business, for a family member, employment is seen as a right. So all of a sudden we 've got these different mindsets, and they in their own right, create a whole range of complications and uh, difficult seas to navigate for people running the business
0: so so what are some of the common resolutions
1: well that 's interesting um, they 're much much different to a standard business because it requires more time it re- requires a lot of uh, uh, consideration and careful planning in regards to dealing with the different politics that are involved in the business um, and Julian, some some of these family businesses can be five or six generations deep yeah. um, meaning that the problems may not be from something that exists in the current generation, it may be something deeply entwined in history uh, two or three generations back and uh, I've witnessed this on a number of occasions where the resolution was actually in a very strong uh, uh counseling uh based coaching based uh area to find what emotional intelligence is running in the business and to make the reality of what's happened uh actually be resolved in the minds of the individual so that they can drop what what's really uh um, hurting them or what's affecting them so that and get down to business um, some key issues over and above the counselling, there's some very standard things, just getting organisational structures and job descriptions into play, particularly for family mm. members where they may have more of a free run, mm. uh, which can actually be very upsetting for non-family members that are working, uh, non-family employees, I should say, that are working in the business so that there is a fairness and an equity and accountability. Mm. Um creating family board meetings where family members actually sit around the table to discuss issues around the business so no one's left out and they all have engagement and ownership of the issues in the business and particularly one of the biggest challenges in doing that is to make sure that when they're in the business that family stays at the door Mm, Um, mm. and that's one of the biggest things that can disrupt the uh, family business is the fact that family issues come into the business but there's actually a converse to that. When we go home and we're in the family, the business issues come back to the kitchen table and that can be uh, very distressing and upsetting and it can actually very much disrupt the business. So mm. the family board meetings can help uh, identify that. that. Yeah, and I think the final thing, uh, Julian, in regards to that is actually a lot of family businesses think that the patriarch, matriarch, the leader of the business is going to be around forever. Having solid succession plan so that Mm, uh, people mm. know under what circumstance and sadly uh, as in all businesses life takes its toll and someone could be disabled uh, or tragically uh, killed in an accident or dies a consequence of an illness Um, and without a succession plan particularly in a family it can be destroying by not knowing who's the next person to step up to the mark if uh, something happens to someone Um, and and by the way the simplest thing could be retirement Mm. so someone's retiring, how have we prepared the employee, the family member, and the mm. employee in the business to step into the void that's left by someone who held a uh, quite a senior position in the business? So, mm. so, Julian, you've given me a pretty tough topic for a short period of time because it's just ongoing, and uh, um, I think for the listeners, many of them would recognise people that they see as being in business, but all of a sudden identify, well, it's more than just a business, it's a... Um, it's a the way key life. to the wealth and a way of life for them. Mm. And, and their life is slightly different to someone that's employed in a role that comes home and doesn't have to bring their work at home uh, with their family.
0: Great. Well, thanks very much for your time, Richie. And we've given us some food for thought. And we'll have a chat with you again another time.
1: Good on you, Julian. Thank you very much. Thank Pleasure you. Be. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Richie Williams there. Uh, with some of those challenges that exist in family businesses and look at the size of those family businesses uh, in Australia not only uh, the number but also the uh, the uh, income time to have a pop over and have a chat with Christina good afternoon Christina
2: good afternoon Julian who are you today sorry how are you today I'm very
0: well thank you and yourself
2: I'm pretty good too. Did you did I did you not hear me properly, or did no. I speak too quickly?
0: No, I was just yeah. I just didn't hear you properly. That's all right.
2: That's no, okay. I hope I hope the connection's
0: okay. The yeah, connection's fine. We're going to talk about using the six Ds in your business.
2: Yeah. So the work that we've been doing lately with um, Singularity University has brought my attention around to um, what exponential organisations uh, usually term the six Ds. And the six Ds, I thought what we might do is do a general intro today and then go over them in a bit more depth, you know, two at a time, perhaps over the next few weeks.
0: And and as you were saying, it's applicable to all businesses, even if they're not technically advanced.
2: Well, even if they're not a a tech business Mm. is the way it is, really, because there's so many technical tools out there that we can all be using to make life, you know, much easier in the 21st century. So. If we embrace the benefits of technology, we can make our business lives much easier. Mm. But on the on the exponential curve, um, which is an exponential, a word that's being thrown around quite a lot lately, and, and what it means is that there's a doubling, um, a doubling in in the rate at which things are happening. So it, it all came from Moore's law, where you know, just say there was originally one one bit on a transistor, um, uh, you know, in computer computation, and then. If you double that, you get two. If you double that, you get four. If you double that, you get um, eight. And then, you know, it's it's a very gradual doubling for quite some time. So the first two Ds on the exponential curve are digitized and deceptive. And we say digitized because it's when life started becoming, you know, when we entered the digital age, yeah, Mm. when things started happening. It's deceptive in the beginning because it seems to be going at a slow rate. And then all of a sudden we get to what we call the third D and it becomes really disruptive. So all those major disruptions in the, in the technical era, you know, the, for example, the Airbnbs and the Ubers and the Googles and, you know, the, the the first computers and then the pocket phones and then the smartphones, all those disruptive, um, things that moved all the technology forward are what we call the third D. The next three are really interesting as far as businesses in particular go, because we have the issue of dematerialization, and I'll give you a quick example of that, Mm. demonetization, I'll also give you a quick example of that in today's, today's talk, and democratization, and I'll give you a quick example of that, so we kind of have an idea of where we're heading with the discussion. So we'll go over digitized, deceptive and disruptive um, in a bit more detail next week, but they're a little bit more self-explanatory than dematerialisation. So what is dematerialisation in the digital era in, in the current way we li- we're living now? And if you have a think about, we had the cassette player, we had big headphones, we had CD players, we had um, weather things, we had BCR machines, we had computer keyboards, all these things that, that were in a material format have in a sense been dematerialized and they all fit say on a mobile phone or on a laptop or on a tablet so where we might have had you know a shelf full of radios and, and cassette players and everything else alarm clocks whatever now everything has been in its in a way dematerialized fits in a, in a on a on an app in your phone and that phone can basically fit in your pocket so
0: or that, on your wrist that,
2: Oh, what, what it, you know, And if you go to WeChat, I mean, that's even more mind-boggling because mm. WeChat is every single app on your phone in one. So mm. Mm. we might leave that for a whole other day. Yeah. Um, so the next one, de- demonetization, what happens when we're in the, in the land of the digital is things become a bit more demonetized because they become accessible to so many people. So Uber, for example, has demonetized um, taxi fleets. Amazon has demonetized bookstores. Skype has demonetized long-distance calls. I mean, remember when, if you wanted to ring overseas, and this mm. would be stunning, but it used to cost you $10 a minute. Yeah. Now you can get on Skype or, you know, Skype or any other um, channels in a similar vein, and you basically pay for nothing. Yeah, mm. you've got, well, you, you know, you're paying for your Wi-Fi, but that's it. Mm. So that's what, that's what demonetization looks like. Democratisation is, um, is even more stunning in that what it's doing is it means that anyone around the world who has access to a phone or to some kind of internet wifi to know anything at any time, mm. anywhere they are. And mm. one of the great examples of that is the democratization of the mobile phone in Africa. In 2017, it reached greater than a billion people. And when you think about um, the remote areas in Africa, and when you think about the tribal living and everything, to know that a lot of these people now have the mobile phone. phones and they've got access to amazing amounts of information. So what we'll go through um, over the next few weeks is a bit more in-depth into each one of those things um, and the possibilities that come for businesses today when you start thinking in those terms.
0: Mm. Applying it to your business. That sounds great. We'll have a chat with you again next week then.
2: Look forward to it, Julian. Have a great week.
0: You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Christina there with uh, the, the 60s. It looks interesting, doesn't it? Because even if we're not in that technical age or we're only on the borders of techni- technology, it's here to stay. It's here to change our lives. It has in so many ways and certainly can help our businesses. Time for one of our Harvard Business Review tips. This particular one, as we said earlier, apologize quickly if you send an embarrassing email. Most people have made the mistake of hitting reply all on a private email or sending an insensitive message to the wrong person after the panic sets in you need to own the mistake approach the offended colleague quickly and apologise I'm sorry I did it and even more sorry that I hurt or showed disrespect for you seek forgiveness I wrote without thinking and could take it back if, if I could take it back I would I can only ask you to forgive me Avoid insincere language like mistakes were made or I'm sorry if you were offended. Apologise in person or by phone. You don't want to risk getting it wrong again via email. And as awful as it may as it feels having to make an apology, recognise that you may have done uh, real damage. You might need to take additional steps to show that you actually care about the issue and are taking it seriously. And certainly in business that happens a lot and uh, I've seen the wrong emails sent to customers with all sorts of embarrassing information in. So, uh, yes, we do need to take steps to fix it up. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. Hope you've enjoyed the program. We've looked at, uh, again, some of those challenges in a family business. And the six we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we'll visit the tax world again with accountant Tony Vidray. We'll have our minute on innovation with Christina and some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for business, the law in you at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week and, as Walt Disney once said, all our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle.